Your time right now is 6 o'clock, and welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, November 20th, 2023. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. In tonight's news... What's behind the neo-Nazi protest in downtown Madison? We go to a Friday protest protest against a Wisconsin-based contractor for their role in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Meanwhile, what to watch for in a high-profile redistricting lawsuit before the state Supreme Court tomorrow. Plus, a local group hosts a prairie restoration workshop this week in labor history and two new entertainment offerings on the big and small screens. All these and more on tonight's news. This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers vetoed today what he calls, quote, a completely unserious plan from Republicans that would give a $2 billion tax cut to some Wisconsinites. The plan would have cut income taxes, created a child care tax credit, and decreased tax deductions for those spending on tuition for private school. The bill was drafted by Republicans as a response to the governor's call for legislative fixes to childcare infrastructure here in Wisconsin. In his veto message, Evers characterized the bill as failing to meaningfully and sensibly address workforce challenges in Wisconsin. Top Republican Devin LeMayhew said the bill would have provided meaningful relief for inflation and childcare costs. Meanwhile, state politicians on both sides of the aisle are weighing in as Wisconsin Supreme Court considers whether or not it should take up a lawsuit on school choice programs. The lawsuit, filed two months after the court flipped to a liberal majority, argues that voucher school programs violate the state constitution's declaration that public funds must be spent for public purposes. It was brought by several Wisconsin residents with funding from the Minocqua Brewing Super PAC. That same PAC has funded other lawsuits targeting Republicans. Both Governor Tony Evers' administration and Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, a Republican, told the state Supreme Court not to hear the case. They argue in separate filings that the case should start in the circuit courts. That way, the lower courts can gather more facts before sending it to the highest court in the state, reports the Associated Press. On the other hand, Jill Underly, the state superintendent, stated that she welcomed any opportunity to better fund the public education system. If the Supreme Court takes the case directly, they'd likely reach a decision within weeks or months. But if this case starts in the lower courts, a decision would take two to three years. Last week, the U.S. Global Change Research Program issued its latest national climate assessment. They published an updated report every five years. The latest assessment projects harsh impacts on agriculture and food production in the Midwest. In particular, it forecasts long-term losses in corn and soybean yields due to extremes in precipitation. Earlier snowmelt will mean wetter springs, but summers will also be drier. Those dry summers, along with unpredictable and harsh winds, will likely cause more extreme wildfires and push smoke on even greater distances. The assessment also finds that the Midwest will see an uptick in climate-related illness and death. According to the state health department, extreme heat affects Wisconsin residents more than any other natural disaster. The United States experiences a billion-dollar weather disaster every three weeks, according to data from the feds. In the 80s, such events happened once every four months. 
In other climate news, state Democrats introduced a package of 20 bills on Thursday, dubbed Forward on Climate. The package proposes a number of changes, from infrastructure updates like electric buses and required parking lane or biking lanes, to job training programs. The proposed Wisconsin Climate Corps would provide workforce development in climate-related fields. Representative Francesca Hong, a Democrat for Madison, says, quote, A green jobs training program will promote economic growth by offering not only employment and professional development for Wisconsinites interested in climate resiliency, but by also supporting the transition to clean energy and prioritizing the creation of good family-sustaining jobs right here in Wisconsin, unquote. The package has yet to receive any Republican support. On Thursday, a state assembly committee heard legislation that would limit an employer's ability to mandate vaccinations. Specifically, it would require employees to develop employers to develop exemption processes for religious, medical, or philosophical reasons. That says some companies and government agencies in Dane County have already dropped their mandates, according to the Capital Times. The bill, though inspired by the events of the COVID-19 pandemic, would apply to any vaccine requirements. A number of state Republicans expressed support for the legislation, saying that employers should not have a say in their workers' private lives. Representative Karen Hurd of Fall Creek also questioned whether vaccines are effective in the first place. According to the CDC, vaccines were crucial in eliminating several diseases in 2000, like the measles and mumps. Both have seen an uptick since the outbreak of COVID-19 in 2020. Today is the Transgender Day of Remembrance, and local groups are honoring those who have died because of anti-trans violence. The day was started in 1999 as a way to memorialize those who have been murdered as a result of transphobia. Locally, advocacy groups are hosting an interfaith service tonight at Fitchburg Memorial United Church of Christ, with a community resource fair to follow. That service just kicked off at 6 p.m. A 2023 report from the Human Rights Campaign found that at least 26 trans and gender nonconforming people have been killed through gun and interpersonal violence this year. More than a third of those victims were people of color, and more than half were black trans women. Among the victims tracked in that report is 30-year-old China Long, who was shot and killed in Milwaukee in October. The Royal Thai Pavilion at Old Brick Botanical Gardens is one of six Thai pavilions worldwide that's located outside of Thailand. Since it was given to UW-Madison, which elected to build it in the Old Brick Botanical Gardens in 2001, its roof has been worn down by Midwestern weather. Now, more than 18,000 ceramic tiles that compose the, compose the roof have been removed by hand, according to a blog post by Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway. Those ceramic tiles were inscribed with messages of hope and peace on September 13, 2001, during an initial dedication ceremony. Another roof tile signing ceremony is slated for early next year, and plans are underway to rehab the mirrors, gold leafing, and other details of the pavilion in 2024. And now, on to today's top stories. On Saturday, a neo-Nazi group marched in downtown Madison, carrying swastika flags and chanting anti-Semitic rhetoric. WORT producer Faye Parks has the story. On Saturday, about 20 members of a neo-Nazi group marched in downtown Madison. They were clad in red shirts that read Blood Tribe, with most faces obscured under black ski masks and orange sunglasses. They carried black flags, each with a large swastika. The neo-Nazis traveled up State Street from the UW campus to the Capitol building, where they chanted, Israel is not our friend. 
there will be blood, and hurled other epithets and slurs at bystanders. Their march continued past the historic Gates of Heaven, located on the edge of James Madison Park. Now owned by the city, it's one of the oldest synagogue buildings in the country. They marched down Gorham Street, where WORT witnessed the Nazi salute and misogynistic and white supremacist comments while taping interactions with bystanders. They wrapped up in Tenney Park, loading into one large U-Haul before driving away. The group goes by the Blood Tribe and is a relatively new white supremacist group, founded in late 2021. They espouse extremist hate speech against Jewish people, quote-unquote non-whites, and members of the LGBTQIA community. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the Blood Tribe's leader was part of the group in Madison on Saturday, based off of his distinctive facial tattoos. WORT's eyes on the ground only noticed four UW-Madison police officers on bicycles as immediately obvious surveillance behind the group while on Gorham Street. But the UWPD and the Madison Police Department say they were monitoring the demonstration and prepared to intervene if needed. The MPD says they received many 911 calls reporting extremists while they were in town. They add that while they do not support hateful rhetoric, the MPD has an obligation to protect First Amendment rights. Local and state politicians were quick to denounce the blatant display of Nazi extremism in online statements. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway assured Madisonians that hate has no home in Madison. UW-Madison Chancellor Jennifer Mnookin said their presence was utterly repugnant. U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin said their presence has no place in Wisconsin, while Representative Mark Pocan called the group despicable extremists. And Governor Tony Evers wrote that neo-Nazis, anti-Semitism, and white supremacy have no home in Wisconsin. The display came with little advance warning. Rabbi Bonnie Margulis is the executive director of Wisconsin Faith Voices for Justice, an interfaith advocacy group. She says that she only heard about this weekend's neo-Nazi demonstration after the fact. You know, I think it caught a lot of us unawares, which is a little bit frightening in and of itself. Sometimes we here in Madison comfort ourselves with the idea of, oh, stuff like that can't happen here because Madison is a liberal bastion. And so we were really shaken out of that complacency on Saturday when indeed it did happen here and it can happen here. The Blood Tribe's presence in Wisconsin comes after their plans to build a 10-acre headquarters in rural Maine fell through earlier this month after local opposition drove the camp out. And now they appear to be circling the Midwest. The Blood Tribe disrupted an LGBTQ pride event in Watertown this summer. They'd attempted to shut down the same event the year before and were unsuccessful, according to ABC Chicago. Rabbi Margulis says that Wisconsin Faith Voices for Justice will continue their work to promote understanding between folks of all religions. I think our primary message is no matter what's going on in other parts of the world, we want to stand together and support each other here in Wisconsin and in Dane County. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. On Friday, the Capital Times hosted a speaking event at the Edgewater Hotel, featuring John Pfeiffer, CEO of Oshkosh Corporation. Protesters gathered outside saying that a subsidiary of Oshkosh Corporation, Oshkosh Defense, is facilitating violence against Palestinians. WORT reporter Jess Miller was on the scene. On Friday morning, the Cap Times hosted their quarterly Power Hour speaking series at the Edgewater Hotel. Friday's speaker was John Pfeiffer, CEO of Oshkosh Corporation, a Wisconsin-based manufacturer of military and commercial vehicles. According to the event page, the Power Hour series is targeted towards people who run or aspire to run a business and features one-on-one, future-focused conversations with Wisconsin's top CEOs. 
Mark Richardson, president of Unfinished Business Consulting and CEO of GigBlender, moderates the events. A group of several dozen protesters braved the cold and wind to protest the speaking event. They say that some of Oshkosh Corporation's products are being used to perpetrate violence against Palestinians. Because I care deeply about what's happening to the Palestinian people. We're here to support, um, well, to stop the genocide in Palestine. It's been an education for me being here. Glad to be here. Earlier this year, Oshkosh Defense, a wholly owned subsidiary of Oshkosh Corporation, announced that they had won a contract valued at over $100 million to produce armored personnel carrier vehicle hulls for Israeli Defense Forces. At the time of the announcement in January, the first hulls were expected to arrive in Israel within 18 months. The protesters claim that vehicles produced by Oshkosh Corporation are already being used in the conflict in Gaza. So I have dear friends in Palestine, and I'm horrendously worried for them. And I check my phone at about 3 in the morning with just dread every day that something awful has happened to somebody. I find it horrific that a company in Wisconsin, I was born in Wisconsin, I've been here for 64 years, and a state that I live in is producing military hardware that's being used now in a, in a ground assault on Gaza, where people that I know have family. Um, I was texting with someone recently when she found out that a family member had died in Gaza. The world is small. It's small enough for us to get our weapons over there, and it should also be small enough for us to to have some understanding that there's horrific human suffering happening there. The Cap Times event was scheduled for 7 to 9 a.m. on Friday morning. WORT News purchased a ticket for the event on Thursday night. But early Friday morning amid the protest and during the first hour networking portion of the event, the ticket was refunded without explanation. Several of the protesters also purchased tickets the night before the event, but were refused entry and had their tickets refunded. They say that they were told ticket sales were supposed to be discontinued on Tuesday. In a statement to WORT, the Cap Times confirmed that ticketing for the event was intended to be closed on November 13th, and the space was arranged only for the number of guests who'd purchased tickets before that date, but the website allowed tickets to be purchased until the night before. The paper added they were concerned that some last-minute ticket buyers appeared intent on disrupting the event, and so made the decision to refund all late registrants. According to the Cap Times' own coverage of the event, around 90 business leaders were in attendance, and Pfeiffer highlighted Oshkosh Corp's advances in purpose-built electric vehicles. In addition to military vehicles, Oshkosh Corporation manufactures a variety of commercial vehicles with a growing emphasis on electrification. Two years ago, the city of Madison purchased the company's first electric fire truck. Oshkosh Defense also has a contract with the U.S. government to produce a fleet of next-generation delivery vehicles for the U.S. Postal Service. Per the Cap Times, Pfeiffer told Friday's attendees that defense makes up only 20% of Oshkosh Corp's business, and that percentage is expected to decrease as manufacturing grows in other areas. But for the protesters, the U.S. government and manufacturers have a bigger role to play in the conflict. This will stop when the U.S. says stop. It will stop when we stop sending endless amounts of money, more than $8 million every single day to the state of Israel. And it will stop when we... When we stop putting our seal of, of approval on these acts of war and genocide, when we say enough, it'll be enough. So it's up to us to, to use our voices and to use our minds to listen to media, to, to read, to understand what's happening here.
And to get out here and do this, because our elected officials are not doing it for us right now, they need, they need a big push, or if they, if they are on the side of life, they, they need us to have their back. So we need to be here. For WORT News, I'm Jess Miller. Tomorrow, the much-anticipated redistricting lawsuit will begin oral arguments between the, before the state Supreme Court. A coalition of Wisconsin voters is claiming that the current voting maps exemplify extreme partisan gerrymandering and violate numerous constitutional rights. Nick Ramos is the executive director at Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, a nonprofit watchdog that fights against political corruption. Earlier this afternoon, he shared his perspective on the lawsuit with WORT news producer Faye Parks. Thank you for joining me, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So in this lawsuit, Clark versus the Wisconsin Elections Commission, what are the petitioners asking of the state Supreme Court? Right now, and what we'll get to hear more about tomorrow, there's two arguments that are being advanced forward. The first one being whether or not the current maps violate the Wisconsin Constitution based upon contiguity. So in the Constitution, it states that all districts, they must be contiguous. And so in a nutshell, I believe that the Clark petitioners are arguing that the current maps violate the Constitution because more than half of Wisconsin's adjoining communities, there's detached territories or islands. And so they believe that this is a blatant violation to the Constitution. And so there needs to be some sort of remedy towards that. The second part is a separation of powers argument. So back in 2022, when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on our maps here in Wisconsin, there's an argument that's being made that the court essentially overrode the governor's veto without a two-thirds of the legislature. And so there's a belief that not only did that infringe on both the governor's veto authority and his power in that, but also the legislature's authority to veto. And so I think as oral arguments kick off tomorrow, we'll get to hear more in depth as far as the context. But that is like overall what the arguments that are being advanced, I believe, are going to be heard tomorrow. Just how gerrymandered is Wisconsin and what are the lived consequences? <laughs> well, I think there's a variety of scholars in Wisconsin and across the country who have time and time again have said that Wisconsin unfortunately enjoys one of the most gerrymandered maps in the entire country. And we get to then experience one of the most gerrymandered legislatures in the country. And that has then created unfortunately, a ripple effect. I mean, because the legislature has specifically surgically divided neighborhoods and carved up communities, it's caused an environment where Wisconsin voters don't, they do not have an equal voice when deciding who represents them. It's created an atmosphere where the legislature gets to tactfully pick who they want to represent instead of the people and their voice and their vote actually getting to dictate who will represent them in office. And then taking it a step further, the maps are so rigged that it's fueled partisanship and extremism because elected officials, you know, they don't have to be responsive to voters if their seat is a gerrymandered seat. And, you know, the numbers and the math, I mean, they get to speak to their base. And as long as, you know, the base is turning out for them, it, it creates a scenario where there could be very popular public policy and things that people want to see done for their neighborhoods and for their families. But it falls on a deaf ear because these seats are not competitive. It becomes a situation where 
you know, I'm going to legislate and do whatever I want. And it's really at the expense of so many people that really deserve to have a seat at the table, deserve to have their voices heard. And unfortunately, especially black and brown communities, and I happen to be a black and Puerto Rican gentleman, and I get to see that, you know, these communities that I love and I'm a part of, they're carved up so much that there's a level of jadedness that comes where people don't even want to bother to vote because they already think the outcome's already predetermined. So this lawsuit in front of the Supreme Court, the first real opportunity, I would say, to restore balance to Wisconsin and be able to give people that seat at the table that they rightfully deserve. So when it comes to tomorrow's oral arguments, what sort of things should we listen for? There's no room in there as of right now that I'm that I see that they can talk about it being, you know, gerrymandered, like partisan gerrymandering. So, you know, you have to look at just factually speaking, whether or not the maps as they currently stand violate the Constitution. And so we're going to get an opportunity from both sides to be able to hear the Clark side uh, laying it out and providing what types of support and evidence and background they have that would help guide the court, either look at the maps and make a decision one way or the other. And then you've got the Wisconsin Elections Commission and the parties that are on that side that are going to be zealously advocating that the maps are fine as is and that the, you know, the Supreme Court back in 2022 got it right and we shouldn't even be looking at maps. So how might this lawsuit affect the upcoming elections in 2024? I know that the Supreme Court is looking to try and be able to get a decision on this as soon as possible with the looming 2024 elections, you know, coming. And I believe the petitioners and Clark have asked for a schedule that helps us if the court decides that the maps are unconstitutional then they want the opportunity to be able to get a process in place to be able to get maps into place so that we can be ready for the upcoming 2024 election. So I know, I mean, I've heard echoes of potentially a decision in December or January. And I know that if you want to be able to actually get things in place, then a decision needs to be made before March of next year if we're going to be looking at new maps. So I don't want to put the cart in front of the horse here. I think, you know, the court's got to do its job and be able to hear all the arguments, review all the evidence and come to a conclusion. But in a scenario where the court does look at these maps and say they are unconstitutional, then you can believe that it would create a a time period where there would need to be a process put in a place to draw new maps and do so before March. And then it would look like Every legislator in the state would then be on the ballot uh, for 2024 under whatever the new maps would be. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I just want everybody to know that maps at the end of the day, legislative maps, gerrymandering, redistricting, those things, they all seem super abstract. And it's like, why would I pay any attention to, you know, this fight over fair maps. And the only thing that I want to bring to, you know, your listeners and everybody, you know, across Wisconsin, the fact is, is that fair maps mean so much more than just electing people to office. It means what resources communities will be allocated and provided. Our maps 
are created based upon census data and the way that communities are drawn up will then dictate where and which, you know, certain very valuable resources and where they go. And so at the end of the day, I think people want safe drinking water. I think people want adequately funded public schools. I think people want access to affordable housing, good paying jobs, safe community. And we can have real conversations about all of those things and more when there is a level playing field with our maps that give people the freedom to have their voices heard and fairly represented when they cast a ballot. And so it's, it's way bigger than just electing people. You have skin in the game in this, whether or not you know it. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Nick. No, I appreciate you so much, Faye, for reaching out. And if you ever need anything from me, just let me know. That was Nick Ramos, the executive director at Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. He says that under the current maps, lawmakers get to choose their constituents instead of constituents choosing their representatives. The redistricting lawsuit, which will begin oral arguments in front of the state Supreme Court tomorrow, will determine whether or not the current maps are constitutional. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. 150 years ago, tall grass prairie and oak savanna covered much of southern Wisconsin. Agriculture and urban development has wiped most of these intricate ecological communities off the landscape. On Sunday, 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing joined a small group of folks learning how to start rebuilding some of that ecosystem. Here's Jeff Steele from the Friends of Urban Nature outing. My name is Jeff Steele. Um, uh, I went to school for restoration ecology. I'm involved with Friends of Urban Nature. In this case, uh, involved with Friends of Circle of the Creek, a former co-chair, just a board member now. Um, so we do various different restoration projects along the creek. This is one of them here at Legacy Park. Uh, in Stark Weather Woods, north of, north of Aberg Avenue, in that woods back there. I don't know, it's west of Carpenter Ridgeway Park, if anybody's been back there, but we've been working for about seven, eight years back there, removing buckthorn, honeysuckle, um, and in its place, uh, putting native plants and seeds, so trying to restore that area. And the results have been spectacular. So in the summertime, lots of wildflowers, lots of wildlife. I encourage you to check it out west of Carpenter uh, Ridgeway Park there. And that's on city engineering land, and you know, they've been very supportive of the work that we've done. Yeah, it's kind of the history of it. Uh, there's some nannyberry shrubs planted along the stop sign there. I hope is to kind of eventually um, kind of enclose this in native plants so it feels less like you're at an intersection and more like you're in a more wild part of Madison as well. So it's a slow process, but um, city engineering is very supportive of the work we do here. So hoping to eventually kind of expand this area into a half moon that kind of connects with the rain garden over there. And then the shrubs will grow in nicely and kind of uh, you know, prevent a lot of the, the car traffic from being so noticeable. Uh, just 150 years ago, tall grass prairies covered millions of acres of the Midwest um, for 15,000 years. And um, today, less than 1% remains, actually far less than 1% uh, remains, uh, the majority of which has been, been destroyed only in the last 50 years. So the need for restoring native plants uh, in this region, especially the Midwest, is very strong. Um, there's a remnant prairie, a restored prairie, and a restructured prairie. A remnant prairie is a prairie that has never been plowed, never been altered, maybe grazed lightly by cattle, um, but they're extremely rare and they're extremely valuable because these are essentially seed banks 
uh, leftover of specific genotypes of plants. Unfortunately, a lot of the remnants that are remaining are on very dry, what we call xeric soil. Um, and who, who can guess why the best prairies remaining are on dry soil? Does anybody have an uh, idea about why that would be? Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, there was not very tillable land uh, on sand and, and, and rocky soil. So the farmers just kind of plowed around uh, some of the, the sandy prairies. And that's what we really have left. Um, if you notice, all the prairies I listed are usually on mounds. And that's because the, uh, the farmers uh, kind of plowed around those areas as well. So a restored prairie is when you find an area that was once tall grass prairie and restore it to what it once was. Um, and there's many ways we can do that, and that's a whole class in itself about restoring tall grass prairies. Um, and there's a restructured prairie, and a restructured prairie is putting a prairie somewhere where it wasn't originally, but it's still creating habitat um, for plants and animals. Native plants are smart. Native plants know that if they fall to the ground, or their seeds fall to the ground and start to germinate, frost will kill them immediately. So what does the plant do? It has a built-in dormancy mechanism it knows it has to go through a cycle of what's called cold moist stratification. So it goes through that cycle of cold moist stratification, which is essentially a Wisconsin winter, a wet cold cycle, and then it knows to germinate in spring when the season's right for it. There's germination code A, germination code C, basically germination code whatever letter. And these letters correspond to what conditions need to be met in order for that seed to germinate. So for some species, it's not just enough for them to fall to the ground and germinate. For some species, they have to, they, they might have a waxy coat on the outside of them, and that waxy coat has to break down, or it has to be burned by fire, part of the fire ecosystem of tall grass prairies. So each seed, each plant has its own conditions that need to be met in order for them to germinate. The next thing I'm talking about is ethical seed collecting. Um, and there, there are certain, you don't want to strip an area of its native seeds. You know, you want to borrow a little bit. If you think about what the native plant wants, the native plant wants to expand its range. So you're actually doing it a favor and it likes that. But if you take all the seed of one species from an area, the chance that that plant is going to propagate is very unlikely. So um, ethical seed collecting from a given population, never take more than 50% of seed from a strong perennial plant or 10% from an annual. Okay. Uh, so my favorite part, now I'm going to talk about removing seeds. Um, so I'm going to go over to this table here. And I have over here a bunch of different uh, paper bags uh, full of seeds that I've collected. And I'm going to demonstrate uh, two of the species right here in front of me about how to collect them. So right now we have uh, yellow coneflower. Is anybody familiar with this flower? It's one of the longest blooming native plants we have in Wisconsin. It tends to start blooming in June. It can go into September, even October sometimes if it's lucky. Uh, this is the prairie in seed right here. Uh, it usually has yellow petals extending down that blow very nicely in the breeze. Um, un unlocking this seed from the, the cone uh, is the fun part. Um, so I usually, when it, <laughs> A seed collector always carries a piece of tag board or something. It's, it's a really good way to see the seeds and to show people. If you want to gather around, you can a little bit as well. And if you just take your fingers on this and kind of pull it apart, you notice all these seeds pop off. And the seeds are these long cylindrical things right here on a coneflower. Some seeds are very fun and easy to collect. If you ever um, go to a 
seed collecting work day. I encourage you to go to one where they're collecting grass seeds, like Indian grass. It's really fun and easy. They're really soft. You stick your fingers and kind of pull up the stem, uh, opposed to something like a rattlesnake master, which is basically a mini hedgehog and is extremely <laughs> difficult to get out. Some plants are very tricky. Some plants are very smart with their seed distributions. Uh, the jewelweed, actually when it's ready to, and also violets do this as well, the seed mechanism uh, will dry and as it dries more and more and more it kind of ramps back like a catapult and then when it dries so much it snaps and flings the seed up to 20 feet <laughs> so that's why wisconsin state flower the violet is actually catapulting seeds every year how on earth do you collect a seed like that uh what i like to do is uh you can buy these and I don't know what these are called besides little mesh bags. I've seen them at weddings before with like little, you know, trinkets you can bring with. Uh, you can take one of these and put it around the flower head. Um, unfortunately, nothing can pollinate it then, um, but try to know the, the, the life cycle of the plant and to put it at the end of the life cycle when it's kind of drying out a little bit. And then they just fling right into this and then you can collect them that way. Uh, some seeds like, um, like purple coneflower, very spiky, very spiny. Uh, it takes a long time to take those seeds out. Uh, you have to kind of pry them out individually. But what if you want to collect seed from a hundred of them? You know, are you going to spend all day doing that? No, no, that's, that's, that's way too much time. Um, we're smarter than that. We can find solutions to it. What I do is I take a grocery bag. I throw in, you know, a hundred seed heads of these spiky seeds and I just stomp it you know, stomp the heck out of it and they all break apart. You know, that's a fun, easy way to do it. And fun for kids too. Kids love doing that. Um, and uh, I do have some uh, utility knives. Uh, if you are in any way not comfortable using a utility knife, do not use it. Like, do not hurt yourself. I am happy to do it for you. Uh, unless you're absolutely comfortable, like, using it, uh, do not use it, please. Do not hurt yourself today. No, like, no, no, this is a no blood park here. <laughs> I will take a utility knife here and right now I want to cut around about halfway through around the whole thing but leave um, a kind of an opening or non-cut part by the handle here um, that way it's kind of like a pac-man thing where you can open it and close it so what I usually do is I will slowly cut it in a sawing motion like this you can use the scissors if you want as well um, scissors are usually safer uh, but I like to use it because it's a little bit faster. So when you're you're done, it should look something like this. And that took a few seconds like that. You also want to create some drainage holes in the bottom. Uh, sometimes people use drills, sometimes you can use a hammer and nail. Uh, I usually just take the utility knife and kind of score a couple marks on the bottom. Um, just three or four, just so some of the water can drain out if necessary, and that's sufficient right there. There's some birds eating some seeds off plants over oh, there right yeah. now. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the benefits of having plants, so you get wildlife. You know, I, I've led classes before and people come to me and say, you know, I love native plants, but there's all these insects always eating my plants. What do I do about that? I'm like, that's kind of the point. You know, like we want to restore these ecosystems. These are native. These are supposedly native bugs in this area that are using that and that's part of the point is that these plants are the foundation of our ecosystems. Uh, each of these plants has insect that relies on it and birds use that insect and so on and so forth. So 
Alicia Steele. Hey. <laughs> and um, I'm here to learn more about propagating nat native plants. We're uh, recreating a woodland native prairie area in our yard. And um, I wanna, I've bought plants and gotten plants from neighbors, but I wanna learn about collecting my own seeds and propagating plants on my own. So what are you uh, gonna be working on here today? Today, I think I'm gonna plant some anise hyssop seeds in this little um, greenhouse made out of a plastic bottle. And then I'm gonna have those outside all winter. And then hopefully in spring, I'll have some little anise hyssop popping up in here that I can plant. And, and why do you like anise hyssop? That's actually a native that I don't have in my yard yet, and it's good for pollinators. It's a little purple flower, I believe, and I think that would go really well in my yard. What got you interested in native plants to begin with? I really like going out into nature and then coming back home, I started to plant more and more wild things in my yard and my yard started to become this sanctuary where I see dragonflies now and the birds and all the bugs that I have in my yard with butterflies and everything. It's got a lot more life and more activity and so now it's my own little sanctuary right around my house. <laughs> You know, I actually saw um, a sign for it on the bike path. Okay. Yeah. And we're interested in planting um, some more prairie plants. And yeah. so we thought, and we've heard about the, the milk jug process, so we thought we would come and check it out. And why do you like prairie plants? Um, I like prairie plants because they're so pretty, and um, I just love growing flowers. And yeah. What kind of flowers do you have in your yard now? Um, I have snapdragons, um, and then I also had some coneflowers and other ones too. And what are you working on here? Um, here I'm doing the royal catch fly. What does that flower look like? Do you know, or is that going to be a surprise? I think it's going to be a surprise. I heard it's red, but I don't know what it's going to look like. So. Okay, and that's the one that attracts hummingbirds, right? Yeah, I love hummingbirds. You have a lot of hummingbirds in your yard now? Um, we had a few. Um, we did have a hummingbird um, feeder, and I really liked looking at the hummingbirds. Oh, great. Awesome. And if you wouldn't mind telling me your name? Leanne Stevenson. And yours? Charlotte Stevenson. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Those were sounds and participants in the Friends of Urban Nature seed propagation workshop that took place yesterday. This Friday, November 25th, is the anniversary of the successful French general strike of 1995. The strike was in response to the government's proposal to raise the retirement age. 70% of the public supported the strike, which involved hundreds of thousands of workers and rallies of over a million participants. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. The unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long For the union men and women standing up and standing strong This Friday, November 25th, is the anniversary of the start of the successful French general strike against welfare and pension reforms of 1995. The strike enjoyed popular support and involved hundreds of thousands of workers. It was the largest strike since 1968. After three weeks, the government was forced to withdraw the proposal to raise the retirement age from 58 to 60 and reduce pension benefits. In May of 1995, Jacques Chirac's Gaullist right-wing party, Rally for the Republic, had been elected president. The new prime minister, Alain Juppé, proposed the cutbacks to reduce the national budget deficit as required by the Maastricht Treaty. October and November saw 
a student movement against the conservative agenda and its attacks on women's rights, especially the right to an abortion and contraception. On October 10th and November 24th, the public sector pay freeze was met by civil servant strikes, supported by all the major trade unions. The Jupe plan became a target of the strike. The plan also called for increased health care premiums, reorganization of the railway networks, cutting welfare to the unemployed, imposing new taxes, plus the explosive issue of raising the age of pension eligibility for the public sector. The change would not only increase the years it would take to get a full pension compared to the private sector, but would have heavily increased the amount that workers would have had to pay into the system. The October 10th walkout was in response to the attempt to start implementation of the Jupe plan with a pay freeze. Rail and air travel were paralyzed, and most domestic and international flights were canceled. Much of the railway network and the Paris metro system and bus service came to a halt. School and universities closed as teachers, and students walked out in protest of the plans. Post offices shut down, and mail went undelivered. Striking workers filled the streets of every major French city, and large demonstrations against the cuts showed their strength and support from the general public. The general strike was announced on November 24th. The strike crossed many sectors. Transport workers again took the lead, crippling most of the rail, bus, and subway systems, as well as causing serious disruptions to air travel. The major rallies took up the cry of bye-bye Juppé. Utility workers joined the strike, and by November 30th, a strike by gas and electricity workers forced the government to buy electricity from Spain and Britain. Postal workers' walkouts led to a 45% shutdown in mail operations. Meanwhile, private sector strikes had been sporadic and few, but that began to change in December. By December 4th, Workers in insurance companies and banks began to strike. Nurses employed a safe strike tactic. The nurses and other healthcare workers maintained safe levels of staffing to protect patients, picketing, and taking care of patients. Militancy also increased, with police clashes becoming commonplace. Striking railway men had held mass public meetings at stations and on the rails since the strike started. Attempts to break them up by police often resulted in pitched battles. Fighting also broke out at the Channel Tunnel, which had been blocked by workers as the strike entered its third week. Ports were also blockaded by dock workers and truck drivers, and the government deployed troops to prevent fuel shortages. The northeast town of Framing Merrill Bach saw large battles between striking miners and riot police. Miners armed with crowbars and rocks built barricades on the roads on one occasion, miners burned down a mining company office. The unions officially ended the strike on December 15th, when the Juppé government agreed to scrap the pension reforms, even though the government refused to withdraw the welfare and health cult. Massive demonstrations took place over the coming week, however, including one of nearly one million people in Paris on December 16th. With many strikes out of control of the unions, because of the small percentage of workers in unions, around 30% in the public sector, many workers didn't end their strike immediately, some holding out until December 22nd. The strike was supported by 70% of the people according to polls taken during the strike. That solidarity and sympathy strikes won a partial victory. President Macron's call for similar reforms in 2023 was again fought by mass strikes and couldn't muster support to pass it through the legislature. So Macron used a section of the Constitution 
49.3, allowing him to bypass the parliament and to execute the change on his own. But that is a story for another day. For the Passes and Past, I'm Harry Richardson. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new entertainment offerings. Harry says The Holdovers is a pretty good holiday movie, and he recommends checking out the first season of Loki before watching the second season on Disney+. I find the world a bitter and complicated place, and it seems to feel the same way about me. I think you and I have this in common. That was clip from the trailer for The Holdovers, a new holiday comedy directed by Alexander Payne. And it's a pretty good, if fairly predictable, movie about a curmudgeonly teacher, Paul, the always reliable Paul Giamatti, and the two people he's stuck spending the Christmas holiday with at a near-empty boarding school for elite boys in New England. Angus Tully, newcomer Dominic Seza, plays the stuck teen, a bright, pain-in-the-butt rich kid who's been dropped by his mom and stepdad from their vacation plans at the last minute. Rounding out our trio is Mary, the school's head cook, Divine Randolph, who steals every scene she's in. As our story opens, we see Paul in full curmudgeonly mode with his disappointment in his class's performance on clear display in their last class before break. I hate how this holiday commercialization starts earlier every year and really wish this movie had come out after Thanksgiving. Paul offers to give them a new test when they complain about their grade, but peevishly withdraws that offer after his best student but a irritating jerk to him and his classmates, Angus, smarts off. He also gives them an extra chapter to read over break. In Paul's defense, he sees himself as upholding the traditional standards of the school without fear or favor, which frustrates his boss. Paul self-righteously flunks the senator's kid. To add insult to injury for his boss, the senator was also a major donor. As the trio are left alone with each other, we see below the surface and see pretty sympathetic, more rounded, vulnerable characters. The movie resists the urge to give us a happy ending, which gives it a dose of realism. The immersion into the story's setting is well done as well. It's 1970 in New England. Mary is a single mom whose only son recently died in Vietnam. One of the movie's more moving scenes shows Paul at dinner with his charges, losing his temper with them saying, you have no idea what that woman is going through. All in all, a pretty good movie worth seeing for the rich interactions of its three main characters, especially Divine Randolph, who gives us a moving performance. Up next, something on a small screen, sci-fi style. We have a little bit of a situation we wanted to run by you. Mobius! Wow! Great to see you again! That was clip from the trailer for Loki, Season 2, which recently started showing on Disney+. Several of the main characters are back from Season 1, principally Tom Hiddleston as the Norse trickster god Loki, Owen Wilson as TVA's agent Mobius, and Sophia DiMartino as Sylvie, an alternate universe Loki, and our Loki's love interest. It's complicated. In fact, I might as well say up front that there's no way to understand Season 2 without seeing Season 1. So listen no further and immediately watch Season 1. It's worth the five hours doled out in six episodes. So, still here? I'm assuming the remaining listeners have already enjoyed this cruise last season and probably saw the evolution of Loki in several prior Marvel movies. So Loki season 2 starts off where season 1 ends. Sylvie has just killed He Who Remains, the series chief villain, and hinted at Marvel number 1 villain for the near future, 
played by Jonathan Majors. Unfortunately for Majors' rep as a major villain in season two, he's mostly an unscary introvert, inventor, hustler, timely, an alternate version of himself plucked from the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. As Loki and Mobius search for Sylvie and begin to uncover a plot to take over the TVA by Ravona Renslayer. Gugu Mbatha-Ra. There's a fun addition here with Ouroboros O.B. Ki-Hue Kwan, who was also great in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Obi is a nerdy techie with a cool retro outfit who doesn't get out of his workroom much. Sadly, though, the relationships of the characters, especially Sylvie and Loki, take backstage to an overly complicated, convoluted plot to save the sacred timeline, or rather, preserve the temporal loom that holds the whole universe and TVA together. One major complication this time out is Loki's unfortunate and unexplained tendency to time slip, that is, move unpredictably from time to time and place to place. The process also looks and is quite painful. Agent Mobius explains to Loki, It's horrible. It looks like you're being born or dying or both at the same time. All six episodes are out, but be forewarned that episode four ends on a cliffhanger so you may want to schedule your viewing so you can watch episode 5 right away. All in all, a fun series with a fine cast, even though the story itself became too convoluted. And I'm not sure I liked the ending. For WT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. Well, that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Jess Miller. Special thanks to feature contributors, 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing, Harry Richardson, and to Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show tonight. Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.